Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness, and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, David Segal, an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic that makes you look or feel good with long form, unbiased, and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday and you can subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. Today we are joined by none other than the TikTok sensation himself, Mr. Jahan Kalanta from Executive Legal. Now, just to sort of preface the conversation a little bit, we have had legal conversations uh, in the past. We've had Ruan Brellon from Avant, who's uh, one of the major insurance companies for medical professionals here in Australia. And we were focusing on conversations more around um, advertising guidelines, things from, I guess, an insurance perspective, Mm. um, how people look after themselves in conflict, um, how patients try and avoid conflict. But we haven't actually had a conversation from... I guess the perspective of someone that's been through a traumatic process, have had something go wrong with a client, or maybe they've been one of those people and had someone like our guest today, Jahan, coming after them or looking at the way that they've conducted themselves in terms of some sort of litigation um, action against a medical professional. So we thought, let's have that discussion today because it's one thing to talk about things theoretically, but when you actually have a conversation and hear about what that process is like, what someone like you was looking for, and being able to provide uh, the listeners, whether they're plastic surgeons, injectors like Jake, um, what can you do to understand the process, protect yourself better, and understand the mechanisms that can lead to a really bad outcome? How does that sound, Jake? It sounds absolutely <laughs> terrifying. When, when you said someone like Johnny comes after you, I just, I froze for a minute. <laughs> so I promise I'm a really nice person and I don't come after you lightly. <laughs> I, I reckon it's the, the handlebar moustache that takes away the fear. It looks inviting, friendly, happy, but inside I reckon there's a bit of a, a yeah. shark. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think there's something to be said about um, Adopting, uh, I guess, a posture that makes you look maybe a little bit more harmless than you are yeah. so that you can, you know, um, people will chronically underestimate someone with outstanding facial hair. I have yeah. found. Yeah. Disarming your opponents. <laughs> yeah, with, you're, with like a, um, you're like a velvet sledgehammer. And how do you guys know each other out of interest? Ooh, well, this forms part of the interesting story. So Jahan and I have known each other for probably 15 years around that time. I, I think that's right. I've had yeah. the privilege of knowing you well over a decade. And um, Jahan and I have friends in common. You know, he's part of the uh, the Iranian slash Persian mafia here in Sydney. So <laughs> we know a lot of the same people. His cousin is Dr. Sharam Shahidi. His auntie is uh, the renowned, was it the Real Housewives of Sydney? Yeah, that's the right. The Real Housewives yeah. and Real Injector, Maddie Samai. Maddie Samai. She's a very well-known injector here in Sydney. So you've been in and around the industry for a long time. You did work with me at Laser Clinics Australia a very long time ago. And then you decided you didn't want to hang out with lunatics like me um, anymore <laughs> and you wanted to go and pursue a real career. And then uh, that's when you went on and, well, tell us, actually, you know what, you tell us, give us give us the, the sort of the Jahan Kalanta elevator pitch, if you will, so we can just familiarize ourselves with who you are. Well, that's very kind, David. Um, essentially, I, David sum- summarized it really well. So I... Um, I've been around doctors and medicine my entire life. My parents are both physicians. My mom's a GP. My dad's a gastroenterologist. My cousin's Dr. Shahidi and uh, my, my auntie's Maddie. So having so many doctors in the family, I was like, there is no way I want to do that. It's <laughs> a terrible and difficult job that requires a level of acumen I simply don't have. So I kind of um, 
bounced around a little bit. And when I was doing my undergraduate degree in business, uh, a portion of that was to be spent, I guess, shadowing and learning from real business owners. And I took an opportunity then to, to reach out to Dave and, and worked with him quite closely for about, what, six months to yeah. nine months, learning about how operations worked and businesses worked. Um, I took those learnings and sort of saw, look, you know, I, I think that I, I want to I'm not good at the business side of things, but I reckon I could make life easier for business owners. And so um, I worked at the bank for a little bit before um, getting a JD and studying law. And ever since then, I kind of have been a litigator. So I've been in the legal profession about a decade now. Um, I was practicing at the private bar for about four years. um, And then I went and opened up Executive Legal. And we're a full service litigation law firm. So we do everything from where to go. If you're, you know, when you say I'm going to sue someone, that's what we do. So we do it in three major areas, commercial disputes slash personal injury claims, family law disputes, and criminal matters. Those are the three areas that we kind of have expertise in. And um, it's been a really interesting ride. In my first few years of practice, I pretty much only did personal injury cases, um, starting with things that were as simple as crash and bash road accidents, all the way up to medical negligence and um professional indemnity type cases. So I've got a bit of a a cross-section of that, having worked pretty much exclusively in that area for two to three years when I first started. Jahan, can you explain for the dummies like me, what's the difference between a lawyer and a barrister, you know, the different training and paths and so on? Absolutely. So a lawyer is a subcategory of all people who practice law and everything falls into that. So you've got barristers, solicitors, and attorneys. Attorneys are a special type of lawyer we don't really have in Australia. Um, A solicitor is someone who does everything outside of the courtroom primarily. So we will speak to the clients, we will take instructions, we will engage experts, we will prepare the case. And a barrister is the one in the wig and the gown who Mm -hmm. appears in court and argues the case properly. Um, I'm what's called a solicitor advocate, which means that I'm kind of a mix between the two. But obviously, in um, cases where there's a real technical element and you need someone with higher levels of expertise, you engage counsel or barristers. Now, generally, people start off life as a lawyer and then go to becoming a barrister as a secondary, um, I guess, stage to the career. And then sometimes I might go on and become magistrates or judges or someone thereafter. Now, you did things a little bit backward. You started off as a barrister and then went to become a lawyer. So, do you want to explore what was the decision process behind that and that, and that sort of transition? So, when I was coming up, um, the law, the law in general can be quite a toxic environment. And I worked at a pretty boutique litigation law firm and I just hated my job. It was awful. I had a nasty boss who wasn't particularly nice. I had um, a really tough time enjoying it. And the only thing I really got pleasure out of was going to court when I would go with the barristers and talk with them and enjoy that. So I thought, you know what, that's sort of the only place in the law that I'll be happy. So um, I took the extra qualification. You have to pass certain exams, which I did. And I, I went and opened a practice where I was basically the tip of the spear. And I really enjoyed that. But when you're a barrister, all of your clients are sort of solicitors. So it's kind of like being a specialist. And while I loved being in court, I didn't love it to the same extent that you need to be a truly great barrister. But what I really like is running a team, organizing things and getting people working on different cases at the same time. And as a barrister, I started to meet all of these different solicitors practices. And I realized, oh no, just because you had a bad experience in that particular solicitors practice doesn't mean that's the universal experience. So I saw how it could be done properly. And I thought, you know what, this is something I really like and I'm good at. I'm good at marketing. I'm good at engaging with people. I'm better at that than I am at the technical aspects of the law. And so I made the decision, which is kind of counterintuitive to go back 
and become a solicitor again. And it's really worked out for me. It's something that I thoroughly enjoy. I like having people that I work with. I love having teams and taking on bigger problems. Yeah. I might just run a little bit of analogy just for people that still might be confused as to what the differences are and and sort of the nuances. So, um, a lawyer potentially could be akin to a general practitioner that has face-to-face interactions um, with their client slash patient. Um, They know a little bit about a lot of things um, and then they will refer someone to a specialist. So if you're a GP and you've got a patient in front of you that has uh, like a neurological disorder, then you would refer that person to a neurosurgeon or a neurologist. And that would be the same as a lawyer then going and seeking out a barrister or counsel as they're commonly known in an area that they specialize in, whether it be equity law, medical negligence, criminal, that kind of stuff. So would that be, I guess, a fair sort of comparison? That's absolutely perfect. Instead of using the word lawyer, you should use the word solicitor. So solicitors are GPs. Lawyers are like health practitioners. They're everyone. They're barristers. Mm. They're they're, um, judges in some instances. Everyone's a lawyer, but I'm a solicitor, so I'm a GP. That's exactly right. I think you've already answered my question, but I was going to say, so then do you did you do an extra training in medical legal law or is that just a generality that you would learn you know at, at sort of law school uh, so there are people who have um, specialist accreditation in medical uh, medical uh, well in personal injury mm-hmm. and medical legal is a subcategory of personal injury i didn't i just got a lot of exposure because i uh, when i was a barrister i used to get briefed frequently by some of the more top end of town, personal injury firms. Um, I won't use names, but one starts with B. Yeah. <laughs> another one starts with G. Yeah. Um, and another one starts with L. So that I've named the big three. And they would give me work that really allowed me to, to kind of, because of the volume and the complexity, um, you really had to get good really quick. So um, that was, you know, good on them for taking a chance on a, you know, a young barrister who really didn't know much, but you start to get really good at it really quick because it's kind of what you're doing day in and day out. Yeah. Before we jump into the main question, something that I mentioned right at the top was your your TikTok account. And it's really interesting seeing, you know, what you've done, which has taken something that's a very complex, very misunderstood uh, area of general knowledge. Most people don't know much about the law at all. And you've started this amazing TikTok account where you're putting short videos together explaining complex concepts, sometimes simpler concepts, but mainly complex law um, explanations for people who just want to have a general understanding of what it is um, that you're talking about or understanding the concept behind a certain law. What was the thought process behind that? And, you know, how have you found interaction from people that ask you questions, people that follow you, and what difference has it made to, to your business? Because it's quite unusual seeing, you know, we're seeing doctors do it now with Instagram and the before and afters, but I haven't seen a lawyer um, do this type of, I guess, uh, work through social media before. So it's funny when um, when the, the the pandemic started, it was a really. I'm used to having a team around me, so I'm I'm you know I lead a team of about six, um, and that doesn't include paralegals, secretaries, etc. But about six lawyers, and I'm a nerd, and David knows this. I love the law and the intricacies of it. I think it's really cool that we as a human race have come up with a solution to violence being the answer to every problem. And so I talk about it incessantly because I think it's fascinating. And when the pandemic happened, all of a sudden, everyone's working from home, clients are kind of bailing, things are sort of going haywire. And I would come to my office, which is usually a huge office in the middle of town with like 600 people, and it would just be like me and three other people. (laughs) So I'm a really extroverted, outgoing person, and I found that really hard. So I just thought, you know what, I'll just make videos because I can. And I took out my camera and I started making videos as if I was talking to like a first-year associate. And 
very quickly, it kind of, and I think it's because a lot of people had time on their hands, it kind of went really busy. And I started to realize that, wow, a lot of people just don't have the knowledge that, and I'm sure that's the same with your guests. I mean, the medical fraternity, the, the knowledge you take for granted is actually hyper-specialized and you don't get exposure to it unless somebody explains it to you. So I, I kind of started that way. Um, it's been a fantastic journey. I think that a lot of people really want to understand this thing that has this hold over their life, um, but no one's kind of sat down and explained it to it. And I guess uh, if I had to elevate a pitch it, my contact is designed to be the thing that's just too hard to Google. So you know, like you know that Prince Andrew having his title strip means something, but that's how are you going to Google that? It's about explaining what does that actually look like. Or you know that if you're under the influence, that means something. What does it actually mean? And so it's content in that particular vein that is designed to, I guess, educate people and help them understand how the law works and kind of make it make sense. Because if you don't understand some of the building blocks, it's really hard to make sense of the whole thing. And I think actually that leads nicely into sort of our topic of the day. And, you know, I was thinking about this when we were planning, you know, questions and topics like, unless you have basically been sued or, or been in that scenario, why would you know about it? Like, why would you know the intricacies, the terminology and what to do? Whereas, you know, for medicine, most people have been to a doctor, or everyone's been to a doctor, you have some idea of that consultation what goes on you get pills or you go to a physio and it doesn't seem that alien but I think if I had to engage with a lawyer because someone sued me I would literally be starting from scratch because Touchwood thank god I haven't been in that situation yet so yeah maybe that sort of leads us nicely into why do patients sue doctors or nurses or clinics it's a it's a there's a whole raft of reasons. I'll tell it from my perspective. My parents are both doctors. My relatives are doctors. I grew up around doctors. And doctors are, without a shadow of a doubt, some of the most hardworking, decent people you'll meet. Um, the myth that doctors go into medicine because of the money is pervasive and incorrect because if you, you would make more money doing almost anything else with far less stress. Yeah. And the same is to be said for nurses as well. So it's a caring profession that requires a level of love and kindness. That being said, in a profession as large as medicine, there is a group of people who are you could call them bad actors. And they're either not, they're either unwilling to do the work properly for whatever reason. Um, certainly, speed is something that I've seen brings a lot of doctors undone. They try to do too much in too little time. They're very poor communicators. So they might be technically excellent, but they don't communicate with their patients to a sufficient standard. And the third is they just, um, they, they just may not be in, they may have bitten off more than they can chew. Hmm. So there's a whole raft of reasons that they may get an adverse outcome, but generally speaking, the patient, the doctor, the, the patient that has been properly informed, the patient that has been treated with dignity and respect is unwilling to go the next step of engaging a lawyer to bring the action. It's usually when someone's properly frustrated that they seek out someone like me. I guess we always tend to think of it, at least from an injectable perspective, as a bad outcome. Um, but in your experience, I think you've already implied, it's often communication and sort of a, a breakdown of trust, not necessarily always a bad outcome, and maybe a sort of a perception of that outcome rather than the reality. Is that right or not? 
it, it can be both. It can be an actual bad outcome. You mm. may have, you know, for example, created necrosis sure. because you, you've, you know, you've injected too deep. You may have caused some form of facial paralysis. There's, mm. there's serious consequences and adverse effect. I think you call them adverse events yeah. under insurance terminology, but from a patient's perspective, and sometimes I think people forget this because you, you, as a, as a, as a nurse or as a doctor, it's your job, I guess, to take, treat it with a clinical indifference because you need to be objective. It's someone's face. It's someone's day to day experience. And if you, if they expected something and you didn't control their expectations properly, that is in many ways the fault of the communicator. Mm. So people don't know what they don't know. Um, and I have found that the the best communicators are the ones that tend to get in the least trouble because usually once the process has started and we're kind of looking and making a chronology of what's happened, when, who did what, when, um, you'll start to see, okay, wow, this person didn't, didn't really inform the patient of the outcomes. They were certainly not supportive when things went wrong. They ignored them. They were rude to them. They were brusque with them. All of those things add up to having a bad outcome. But it, it, it's not necessarily the, that, that the medical outcome was poor. It's that the communication broke down along the way. Mm-hmm. Right. So who decides what constitutes a bad outcome? Sometimes it's obvious when someone's like butchered beyond belief and Blind Freddy can see that it's a bad outcome. As you alluded to, sometimes it's expectations. You might have an outcome that looks great to you, your peers might agree, but the patient's very unhappy with the results. So as a lawyer, how do you sort of navigate through that process of of separating uh, perhaps an unrealistic expectation versus what people would consider a good outcome um, amongst their peers? So it's that, look, it's, it's it's something that comes with training and time and you get better at picking it you know, as time goes on, sometimes it is just so obvious that this person's behavior was not okay. Um, and we can talk about that later, but sometimes you'll get like, I often get somebody contact my secretary calling me saying, drop everything, Jahan. There has been this patient who's called and they've said that they have just had the worst outcome. They can't even leave the house. And then you have a conference with them and you're like, you look fantastic. Like, what are you (laughs) talking about? Like this, you've completely, you know, missed the point. Um, and it's about having that conversation being, look, realistically, for example, rhinoplasty, I think it's 25% vision rate, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so there's always a little tweak here and there, and people are often not 100% satisfied, but that's okay. It's whether it's better than it was and whether there's you know any long-term consequences, both functionally and aesthetically. Um, but sometimes it is just really poor form and behavior that's just not okay. So as a lawyer, for example, I think it's really important to give frank feedback and I think it's important to be upfront and honest. I I know in my profession, a lot of lawyers will overcook the omelet to win the client. So the client will come in and you'll tell them, oh yeah, this is horrific. You're going to get so millions of dollars if you come with me. And they'll do that to win the work, but then ultimately the patient doesn't get a great outcome. And I think it's the same in certain areas of the medical uh, fraternity where a, a person who's maybe somewhat conservative will go to a doctor and there'll be doctors who will be like, no, I'm going to do an amazing job. You're coming to me. I've got magic hands. Everything's <laughs> going to be great. And they say that the patient gets a less than optimal outcome and they've kind of built a built a, um, a brace for their back. Mm. In, in those situations where something maybe does go to court, do, do you ever have to call upon an expert witness who's sort of, you know, 
outside of the case, but can give you an objective view of, I think this is a standard outcome that could have happened to anyone or, well, there's some malpractice going on here. Is that common? Almost always. In fact, you can't begin personal injury cases unless you have some evidence that things were not done to the appropriate standard. Right. So you do need to you do need to get that in. Um, doctors, as a rule, particularly for example in New South Wales, um, they've got very strong lobbies, and generally speaking, doctors don't like to speak ill of one another. So what we do is we just go interstate or we go international. Mm. So there will be a doctor somewhere if you've done a poor job who will call you out on it. Um, a lot of people, I think, think that because there's, you know, maybe they're the, the doyen of that particular procedure here in Australia, no one's going to call them out. I've engaged doctors all over the world, from Canada, the UK, interstate, uh, retired professors, um, because I'm, I don't know, I'm not a, I'm not a medical expert, but um, when something just seems off, you, you go and you see. If somebody gets facial paralysis and they haven't been warned of that, I don't think I need to go to the highest expert in the land to know this probably wasn't an appropriate procedure to be done in this person in this way. So you will require expert evidence. And as a lawyer, a big part of my job is almost secretarial in nature. It's finding out how to link all of the different pieces so that we can prepare a case that meaningfully will help address them. So out of all the people that, that will come to you and, and seek out your services for what they perceive to be medical negligence or a bad aesthetic outcome, what percentage of those people do you believe have genuine cases and what percentage of people that are just either got body dysmorphia, there's some sort of personality um, issue, maybe they've just got unrealistic expectations. Curious to know what the sort of breakup is of, of that. It's very hard. It's about, look, it's about 50-50. Okay. Um, some people will never, look, there are people who love to litigate pointlessly. They exist. And, and unfortunately, you, you, you hope they never come into your practice. Um, there's people who have unreasonable expectations and are just, you know, not, not particularly nice. Um, it's about 50-50. From time to time, though, you can really tell when someone's kind of hamming it up. And then you can also tell the opposite, where someone has come to you under the most e enormous reluctance but they have a great case. Like mm. it's, it's what was done to them was just uncool and completely inappropriate. Um, so I would say 50-50. Is it possible maybe to the, illustrate to the listeners, give us an example of, of poor communication, like a real case, obviously, that's, you know, um, confidential, but something that is tangible so people can understand, you know, where, you know, seemingly just the communication itself led to, to you know, going to court or being sued. A very basic example that I can talk about, um, it's quite an interesting one. Um, in terms of when the outcome itself actually wasn't that poor, but there was a lack of communication which subsequently escalated things, aftercare is everything. Mm. Like I had a matter where essentially the, the, person, um, the person went to a cosmetic injector and they were not warned about certain potential side effects. Now, most cosmetic injectors, I imagine, know that you need to warn about blindness and facial paralysis and all of the more serious ones. But there's a number of little sort of things that can go wrong. For example, that there's asymmetry mm -hmm. or that there is a, um, you know, that, that you may lose some mobility for a little bit longer. Um, and particularly around fillers, um, a lot of people don't explain there is this thing called highlays. I mean, I'm sure there's other options, but the equivalent of something that will melt the filler down if you're unhappy with the outcome. So somebody goes to this cosmetic um, injector, um, says, I want, you know, XYZ, I want kind of a facial refresh. The person puts in 
an obscene amount of filler. Uh, we say because they wanted to charge the client more. Can they I ask say what, it's, Can you qualify what you mean by obscene? A lot, a lot for the instincts. I mean, it was, it was. If, if the person needed maybe four units, I would say maybe nineteen. Like it was, it was, it was so much more than they should have. And the reason I say that was the case was because they wanted to charge the patient. Okay, so they, nineteen they, mils. That's, that is a, a a decent amount, regardless of which inject you are. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was. It was. I think that it was. Yeah, and they just. It basically what happened is one side blows up. They put too much in the other side to fill it up, and. Rather, and the person goes, Hey, look, I look ludicrous. And you've got the messages back and forth. I look ridiculous. They're like, No, you look great, babe. You're fantastic. Da da da. You're, you're beautiful. This and that. And back and forth until eventually the person goes, Look, there's not essentially the objector goes, There's nothing I can ever do to help you. You're, you know, you're, you're basically fried in the brain. Your behavior is just, you know, don't bother me. I'm an artist. Wow. Now, (laughs) all that person I think had to say at that stage was, Oh my God, I'm really sorry. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to high laze out the extra. I'm going to give you the money back for the work that I did. And I'm really, really sorry. Is there anything I can make it up to you with? Mm. That's not what happened. And so you eventually get to this position where somebody like me goes, okay, if this is like, that behavior is abnormal and it would be abnormal across everyone. So you start to explore their patterns. Are they the kind of person who overprescribes, you know, fillers for the purposes of profit? And there absolutely are. There are people in that in the profession who do that, who will suggest more units because it is cheaper to do. It is better for their profit margin to do more units in fewer patients than to do more patients and fewer units, regardless of the cosmetic outcome. So that was an outcome where I think that I'm almost certain because I sit with these people afterwards and I go, "Hey, what would it have taken for this not to escalate?" You know, I'll ask that after about a year generally. Hey, what would, what would it have taken? And she, she goes to me, if she had just said, I messed up, I'm really sorry. You do look like a clown. I can't believe I did that to you. Let me fix it. Because I don't think I would have pushed it this far. Mm, Yeah. Right. One of the things that you sort of get taught or you sort of learn either as a business owner or potentially injector as well as, you know, once you start admitting that you've done the wrong thing, um, especially if you start putting those things in writing, can that be used against you? Is it an omission of guilt once you start doing refunds or you start acting in a way that would reinforce the fact that you've done the wrong thing? Can that not work against you? And then if it, if it does, how do you do what you've suggested without putting yourself in a, in, a, in a position where you're actually even more at risk? It can in very few instances, but generally speaking, an apology is nothing more than you saying... I'm really sorry the outcome isn't what we thought it would be, and I'm here to help to make it better. That's not going to be an admission of guilt in any... I mean, I can't speak for all of the legal fraternity. I don't ever go for the jugular. I never try to hurt doctors or or nurses in a personal capacity. I just try to make things right for my client. Um, And something along the lines of, I'm really sorry that this outcome isn't what you thought it would be and it isn't what I expected. I'm doing the best I can to make it better. That's generally looked on quite favorably. So it, apologies in and of themselves are not indicia of wrongdoing. Um, I don't know if you did this to sort of just make that story more funny, but you said something interesting. You said the injector called the patient babe. Now, I've kind of joked about this on Instagram where I've seen that myself and people talk about it and they sort of almost treat their patients like friends. I think that's real slippery slope to start off a medical relationship with where you're almost dumbing down the seriousness of it, but also calling your patient 
you know, babe. I, did was that a serious example, or did you that just was a literal look? The, the number, I, the number of units was false, but the the particulars may be a little bit false. But that's exactly what it was. It was this level of informality. That mm. you're you're a professional. I mean, I mean, there is certainly a place for befriending a professional after a 10, 20 years. You've done it over and over again. You know that person. You go to their kids' birthday parties, but you're a professional and there needs to be a level of distance there and a level of respect. Um, I think that the problem with aesthetics is that people forget that there's a functional medical element to it. And they, there, there is a real, um, there is a real folksy friendly aspect, which I think you also need. It's, it's very hard because your bedside manner has to consist of being clinical in nature, but also taking some of the fear out of it, but also you can't, you can take it, too far, and and people often do. I, I I I read text messages from injectors or doctors back to patients, which are borderline. Like I wouldn't send that to my mate. You know, like mm. um, things that are really put you in a bad position. You should remember anytime you send anything in writing or even say it. Assume it'll be read onto a court record someday by somebody like me saying it in the most negative tone possible. For example, so did you text this patient? Nah, babe, you're going to look great. Wink. Is that what you said? Because that's what it's going to be. Well, it's often, again, <laughs> sort of joking side, but I see it all the time. They, they end it with a kiss. I'm like, what are you doing? This is a patient, not like your best mate your or friend. your mum. <laughs> it's yeah. not your friend. They, yeah. I mean, you, you're rendering a service. Yes. It's, yeah. it's interesting, isn't it? Well, it is. And I, I think that's, you know, we've had this discussion many times around this particular industry being, I wouldn't, I don't, dumb down is probably a bit of an unfair term, but very casual. It, it, I think a lot of times people forget that it is still a medical procedure. You are dealing with scheduled medications. There are things that can go wrong that are potentially life-threatening or at the very least could cause deformity or serious injury. And I think we've done it to ourselves as an industry. We've downplayed the seriousness of it and, and sort of portrayed it as, you know, getting a haircut or getting a manicure. It's, it's not. And I think that's probably where we're potentially running into problems as an industry. Yeah. I, I actually think that injectors would make their life easier by making that definition clear that, you know, this is a medical treatment. I can still be friendly and accessible, but there's a boundary here. Because, you know, when you do get a complaint, even if it's just a minor thing, it makes it easier to deal with rather than suddenly they're so familiar with you that, you know, you're almost treating them like a friend and giving them freebies and stuff. That That's not how business or, or medicine works. I don't, I don't know. What do you think, Jahan? It's a tough one because for a lot of people, the belief is that if they're my friend, they're less likely to sue me, which is probably true because you're less likely to sue your friend. Um, but for what it's worth, I think that taking a professional, um, not cold, but clinical approach to this, because it is a clinical procedure, may be the more sensible modality long-term. Because also when they're your friend and you can, you know, oh yeah, they'll just come back and we'll fix it up. You do take a little bit of a laissez-faire approach. And when the relationship is examined through a microscope, because that's what a lawsuit is, it's the examination of what took place on that day and the consequences that flowed through a real microscope, then you're going to come undone. And I think it's just so important for people to understand that what, you know, I practice in divorce. So people who love each other intently can be going head to head over the most bananas um, minutiae a few years down the line. So it's just so important that 
if you've treated, if you behave like a professional the whole way through, what do you have to worry about? Yeah. It's a fine line, isn't it, between wanting to build so much rapport that these people feel like your family or your friends, but in some ways, it almost makes it easier for people to go to that level of, I mean, you talk about the arguments you have with your friends, your parents. We generally talk to the people that are closest to us or do things to the people that are close to us. We wouldn't do to people that we probably have a different level of um, relationship with, like a professional, like a doctor or a lawyer. So sometimes, as you said, it's about finding that right balance where you have rapport, there is a level of respect between both people, but not to the point where it becomes like talking to a mate in the schoolyard because then you might have the rapport, but there's no respect. That's right. Yeah. I have to say, one, one of the common things that I see as an injector, because I, I you know, get a lot of patients who unfortunately bounce around different clinics, is that they don't go back and complain. They don't go back and explain, hey, things weren't right. They just feel awkward and you know, not, not looked after. I'm sure it's happened to me because I'm, I'm not perfect as well and I'm sure the occasional patient's gone elsewhere. But wh- why do you think that patients, you know, don't go back and say, hey, things aren't right? And, you know, what, what mechanisms can injectors put in place to make that sort of process a bit more seamless? It's hard because there is a power differential and that's why the friendship thing can't work. There is a fundamental power differential in the relationship between a physician and a, or, 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 you know, there's a duty of care that you owe to your patient. I mean, it's, a, it's one of the, that's why medical negligence in, in many ways is actually an easier area of law because when you're trying to prove negligence, sometimes, you know, they, you have to prove a whole variety of factors. You have to prove causation and breach and da, 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 da. We just, we know there's a duty of care there, which makes our life quite easy. Um, that's, I think, the difficulty. And you almost want to make it so that people are not afraid to give frank and fearless feedback. It's actually, look, if you've gone so conservative that a person is not happy with the outcome, you may have lost that patient, fine, but you're not going to get sued. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the other way, when you've gone so over the top, is more likely to land you in legal hot water. So it's a very difficult fine line. And I think it can only be, I guess, mastered with time as you get better at your, I guess, technical expertise and your relationship building expertise, because you're also running a business. You're running a business. You're, um, you, you know, you need to manage all of these different expectations. As a rule, I think it's a silly road to go down to become friends with your patients to the extent that you're like texting all the time. I really think that that's a bad move. Um, I don't think it ends well um, because the, 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 objectivity of this is a patient and I need to treat it with this level of reverence starts to fade. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, you know, and we all have social media, especially injectors. It just seems to be a very, obviously it's a very visual thing. So you're showing before and afters and such forth. And that opens a can of worms where patients think that they also can access you whenever they like, you know, at midnight firing you a DM saying, hey, I've got a, (laughs) I still got a wrinkle left and so on. So I think it's better if you sort of cut that message very short and say, thanks for your message. There's a process to rebook in for a review. Here's the link. And, and you know, that's professional, but also giving them what they need, I guess. Would you agree that's a good solution? Absolutely. That's a great way of doing it. You want to say, look, thanks for the message. I know it's not an emergency. If it was an emergency contact, da, 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 da. Um, otherwise, if you just think, here's a link. Mm. You, you want to make it really and you want to get back to people in a timely fashion the other problem is unfortunately because of the modern instantaneous nature of communication everyone expects you to get back to them immediately and they think their problem is the only problem you have which for for very diligent um 
injectors and very diligent people in this profession, it can become overwhelming. And mm. that can also lead to problems. One of the things that I have found, because I've acted on both sides, I've acted for people who've been accused of, of you know, some sort of mistake. And what's very, very common, and what I always tell them is, right now, you are going to be compromised psychologically. 20, 30% of your brain power is going to be worried about this complaint, baseless though it is. That's when you make a mistake. Mm. You have to be hyper careful now because in the back of your mind, you may be thinking about something else and you may be making an error. And so sometimes I think that it's almost the opposite problem because someone's being so diligent and trying to get back to so many patients and respond to their inquiries and stuff, they, they take their eyes off the ball. There's only so many hours of focus, even the most exceptional professional can have in any given day. Yeah. I think... Um what's become obvious to us during the course of this podcast and both of our collective experiences in the industry and Jake talks lots of injectors around the world all the time is that these mistakes tend to happen um, a lot of the time in the infancy of the careers of these professionals. Um, and just to sort of break that down a little bit as to the reasons why that may be, inexperienced with different personality types, you know, you spend your whole um, life learning how to physically execute a procedure or a diagnosis, but then to be thrown in where you've actually got face-to-face -face communication with a patient. And I don't know, and maybe Jake, you can illuminate us on this, is, you know, how much training do you have in terms of being able to communicate with patients and have that bedside manner and, and overcome difficult situations and, and, and sort of things that go wrong and how you have, have <clears throat> a conversation that doesn't escalate or get to a point where it becomes confrontational or adversarial. Um, and then you've also got patients that are starting their businesses that have commercial pressures. And so they have to make decisions around, do I take this patient on? Do I not? Well, I really need the money. What the hell? And so it feels like, you know, there is an opportunity for someone like you to provide training for a lot of these new doctors and nurses that are coming out in terms of saying, hey, these are all the things that can go wrong. This is, this is the gauntlet that you're about to run. You need to understand what the risks are. These are the things you should do. These are the things you shouldn't do. This is how you avoid having someone like me come after you. That was just an idea I sort of came up with, but interested to hear what you think, Jake, and then over to you, Johnny. Yeah. Um, look, <coughs> I think, you know, Jahan sort of said himself in his own career, we all learn by experience. Sorry, Jahan, I called you Johnny. Sorry, sorry. Hey, call me Johnny. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> that's your little favorite nickname. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and and you can't teach experience. It comes it comes with time, of course. And and one of my big bugbears with training injectors, and I do it myself, is that we, you know, you can teach someone to have a skill and and point a syringe and do certain things, but you can't necessarily tease out the personality of the patient, the subtle nuances of each different face, and you know those things come with time. And you know that's why the review is really important. You bring these people back, you look at them, might not be perfect, but as long as you know what to do with that patient, then I think that you can sort of handle those slight sort of mishaps or those slight errors. And we all get that even now, you know, no one's perfect. But um, yeah, it, it's, it's learning about those red flags, those, those difficult patients, those subtle telltale signs, even from the moment they walk in, you want to be observing people's body language, their you know, they're, they're sort of, you know, they sat there crossed arms, sort of not giving you much. You, you already know that the rapport's maybe not good. Um, yeah. And those patients, you maybe want to be going slowly, or if you just get that gut feeling that, you know, I think Johnny said it as well. Like if you, if you imagine the worst case scenario, what would happen if, you know, they, they suddenly complain and, and potentially say, oh, I'm writing you a letter from my lawyer. You want to go back retrospectively and say, well, do I really want to go down that route? Is it easier just to say, no, I don't think I'm the guy for you, but I've got a colleague who's great at X, X treatment. Uh, what, what do you think, uh, Jahan? 
I think, I think, look, I faced it in my own practice and I think it's just something, one of those things that sort of happens over time. You get better at gauging clients, you get better at seeing situations. Um, you know, I've gotten pretty good now at gauging whether someone's going to be a headache or not mm. and whether, um, and, and it's it's easy because I have enough work. When I was starting, I had no work. I had no choice. I take on anyone, no matter how nasty or ill-tempered or um, just they, they they were a difficult person. You still have to help them. And when you got a little bit more of a client book, you can tell that person, "Look, I don't think I'm the right one for you." And you can, I I, I, I even take it a step further, and I go, "I don't think I'm the right one for you because mm. I don't have that expertise." Or I've noticed that when you know you need a turnaround time that's more quick than I can provide, this person might be. And and you'll slowly develop colleagues that you can farm off different challenging clients to for different reasons because they may be able to benefit from it. Um, it's also about, I guess, having built-in little safety checks that you can. For example, I have a I have a very simple form that I make the client fill out. If the client's not prepared to fill out that form, then that client is not going to be the kind of client who is going to sit down and deal with the thousands of questions I'm going to ask them over the course of this. If they're not prepared to take literally 30 seconds to do an online form that they can fill out in a text message format, that's maybe not the right client for me. And it's kind of building in these systems that do a little bit of the checking for you. Of course, you get it wrong from time to time. I mean, just the other week, I was like, man, I wish I had never taken on that particular case because now I'm dealing with all the the, the challenges with it today. So I, I hear what you're saying. And I think there is something to be said for that. It's just so hard. It's yeah. just so hard because you're dealing with people. And when you deal with people, you deal with complexity. There's a, a the infinitesimal level of complexity with each and every person. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And my consultations have got longer and longer and not to say complex, but I'm going into more detail about psychology, their social life, their job, past medical history, of course. And, you know, if you start ticking a number of things that are kind of, you know, outliers or, or, or the end of the spectrum, you start having to sort of build a, a picture of this person's personality to wonder, well, are they really going to play ball? Are they really going to deal with the downtime? Are they really going to be happy to come back for a review? Or are they going to be that person who immediately gets irate and is sending complaints to people? But, um, you know, I think all injectors, or you don't have to be injector, anyone in business knows that tricky patient. You've dealt with yeah. you know, tricky patients, hundreds. David, hundreds. <laughs> hundreds of them. But, but what do you actually say to those people where you want to bail out before you touch them because, you know, I've been in the situation. I remember a specific one where I used to work at David's clinic and I gave her as professional as I could, all the reasons why I didn't want to treat her. And we then got a complaint that I was arrogant and, you know, so on, so on. But on balance, I'd rather take a complaint that I'm arrogant and, and that's the end of it. than oh, he messed up my face. He's ruined my life, blah, blah, blah. So I think you have to think of the bigger picture to some extent. Uh, of course, absolutely. You're, you're, Getting complained about is the nature of the beast if you're rendering a service because generally speaking, people want outcomes that may not be realistic. One of the things I found, for example, in my line of work is ambiguity will always be read in a way that is the opposite of what I meant. And I think it's probably the same in medicine. So, for example, if you tell someone, hey, you have to, you, 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 you can stop smoking six weeks before. All right, you can still smoke up to about eight weeks. They're going to hear that as I don't have to stop smoking until the six weeks for sure. It's better not to stop smoking. So you have to be super clear and say, hey, if you want this procedure, you cannot smoke anymore. 
Otherwise, I'm not going to be able to do it for you. You're going to have this period of time to get off the cigarettes. And, you know, it, it's, it's, people are just not going to gel with you because you're providing a professional service. And I have found I would rather have 10 clients who are dying to work with me than a hundred who find somewhat ambivalent towards my presence or a thousand where, you know, a bunch of them are just going to hate me Mm. because you're not going to be everyone's cup of tea. And I would rather, I think that it takes real courage to tell someone, Hey, I'm not the right person for this job. And I, I, I try to tell that. I tell that all the time. I go, Hey, so that you know, I'm very, very good. But when I say I'm not comfortable with something, it's because I'm care- looking out for you and your interests. Mm. I think that's a, that's a good point because saying no is sometimes difficult, and sometimes people feel scared to say no um, because they feel like they're telling people they're not good enough, or they're not, or they're not competent, and they're worried that people are going to spread that room. And all of a sudden, you get this reputation as someone that that says no and doesn't know what they're doing. But it's much better to get a Google review that says this person didn't want to treat me and I hate their guts rather than they butchered my face and now I look like the elephant man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Can I ask, um, what does the suing process actually look like? So let's just take an arbitrary example. You got an injector, does a treatment, and let's just say worst case scenario, the patient goes blind in one eye just to make it clear. Um, What is the process? Obviously the patient you know, is, I mean, that sort of scenario, you know, on the day that there's a problem and go to hospital and and the end event is they're blind in one eye. So what, what happens then? What does the patient do and what is the communication with the injector? So generally speaking, patients will try to resolve disputes before coming to a lawyer. Mm -hmm. They'll generally say, Hey, make this right. And um, once that complaint comes in, the best thing for you to do is to speak to your indemnity insurer and put them on notice that something has happened. Um, the, you're, because health professionals in Australia require insurance to do what they're doing, um, you 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 will be able to access that support. You can also access support through your union and or through, um, I guess, your professional groups. So yeah, that's the process. Now, if that that if that doesn't bring the person any joy, then they'll seek out probably a lawyer. They'll come to find somebody like me, and the first thing I'll do is I'll interview them and I'll take a bit of a history as to what happened, how did it happen, etc., and then I will. I will prepare what's called a letter of demand, which is I'll write to you and say, hey, you did this, this, and this, and I I demand that you fix it by doing this, usually sum of money. You'll take that letter of demand and you'll give it to your insurer and then your insurer will deal with the whole process, but they will be communicating with you and saying, hey, you know, give me this, give me that. Then we'll start to get evidence. So for example, the first, I don't think it's controversial. The first thing I'll look for is your clinical notes Mm -hmm. and you are required to provide them to me. So I'll look through your clinical notes and I'll look through them with a fine tooth comb. I can read doctor's handwriting better than anyone you've ever met, better than the best pharmacist in the world. I know how they write (laughs) and I'll look for things. So for example, let's take the smoking example. If there is an adverse event caused by smoking and I don't see in any of your notes told patient not to smoke, I'm going to assume you didn't. Mm -hmm. So you need to take very detailed contemporaneous notes when you speak to people. Um, What's quite popular from a lot of doctors is to do like um, standardized templated advice, which is okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But then you have to ask yourself, did that doctor really go through that template or did they just control V it? Um, So you, you really want to make sure that you're capturing as much information as you can. So we'll get the notes. And then I'll look at it and say, okay, well, is there a case here? And I'm, it, it's up to me to, to do two things. One, prove that you 
So liability, are you liable for what happened to my client? And if so, quantum, how much is my client entitled to? Mm -hmm. And quantum is a very complicated process. We look at things like how much, you know, the the, the economic loss, the non-economic loss, their possible loss of future earnings. And so it gets it gets quite large, quite fast. Your insurer will handle that entire process. Um, generally speaking, they will have a, a pool of money that they will allocate to represent and assist you. And you'll get the okay or no okay to, to authorize that and your premium will go up accordingly. Right. Interesting. So, uh, so yeah. how long, I mean, every case is different, of course, but you know, how long do these processes take before it eventually potentially goes to court? Or does most of it get settled, you know, like you said, out of court by an agreement? That- Every case is different. Some right. cases, the medical, so so certain indemnity insurers, for example, tend to be more abrasive and aggressive than others. Certain doctors tend to be more aggressive and abrasive than others. Um, I'm a big believer in you never pull out a gun unless you're prepared to shoot. And mm. I never make a threat that I'm not prepared to carry out. So when I send that letter of demand, the original one, I'm prepared to do everything in there. So I'm prepared to sue you. I'm prepared to, if it takes five years, it takes five years. It is what it is. I will, um, you know, I'll see you at the end. And that's sort of, it, it takes as long as it takes. So mm. sometimes, for example, just the evidence gathering stage might take six months to a year to get an expert report where the expert looks at the situation and says, were you at fault or weren't you at fault? Um, so every case is different. Usually, we try to resolve it before it goes to court through an informal mediation process. But sometimes when you think the insurance company is not playing ball, you sue. You just sue. And in in those circumstances, do do the parties ever meet in face-to-face or is it all just lawyers through emails and letters? Usually, usually what will happen is that it will be the the lawyer for your insurance company and your insurance company's representative and me and my client. Right. Usually. Sometimes the... Sometimes the doctor does come along, but it's not its not always the case. Mm-hmm. I'd like to just um, sort of wind back to clinical notes because I, uh, we glossed over We didn't gloss over it. We spoke about it, but I'd like to just talk about it in a little more detail and perhaps give some context as to my experience. Um, you're in a clinic. You've got an injector there who might see 10, 15 patients in a day. They'll get to the end of the day. And then they will write their clinical notes for all 10 to 15 patients um, whilst they're doing drug counts and rushing to get out of the door. And I've had this conversation with injectors like ad nauseum, do it at the time. How are you going to remember every piece of information, every conversation that you had at 6 p.m. when your first conversation took place at 10 a.m.? So it would be great if you could just break down just at a very high level what constitutes good contemporaneous notes? What level of detail are you looking for? Um, And maybe just a a word of caution to doing notes retrospectively where you potentially cannot remember every detail and and in some instances, and it's always going to be the one where you forgot something, which is the patient that's going to have potential recourse or reason to be upset. So if you could just talk on that a little bit, it would be great. I run a really busy practice overseeing numerous lawyers and going to court four to five days a week. And I I get it. I really do get that you need paperwork like a hole in the head. But I make it a rule. The second I walk out of a courtroom, even if I've got a zillion things to do, I will sit down and I will make my note then and there. I will talk about who was the magistrate that I was in front of or who was the judge, who was opposing counsel, what did we discuss? And I'll give a high-level overview that will enable me to understand one, what needs to be done next, what happened, and how much should I bill for my time? Mm. These are three really important questions. And if anyone ever questions what happened, I can say I did it as soon as I can. I cannot tell you how unstuck you will become when you have 15 patients to write about. You cannot 
handle that level of detail sufficiently, you will be doing yourself a disservice. Yes, I understand that will cost you two patients a day, potentially you know, 10 patients in a week. That's a lot of money. You know what's a lot more money? Somebody like me tearing your world apart and your insurance premium going up forever because you didn't take detailed notes. They need to, it doesn't need to be, I said, she said, he said, it's not an affidavit or anything to that extent, but it needs to be patient is this. I mean, I've won cases on the back of things being, you know, patient is 34 year old male. It's like, no, he's not. He's a, he's a 31 year old male. Like how can I trust anything you've written after that? If you've gotten the age wrong or the date of birth wrong, you know, patient said he was worried about, um, you know, patient said worried about frown lines. I go, why did you go in there? Oh, um, you know, I went in there for, uh, I went in there for cheek filler. It's like, well, it's, it, it doesn't mesh up. So you should do them as close as you can to the time. Enough, enough that uh, a good rule of thumb is if you handed this note over to another competent professional, could they follow along with this patient's story? Yeah. yeah. That's even a good way to test it. Yeah. Well, maybe Jake, you could tell us about your process for how you um, fulfill your notes and make sure you don't forget all details because you're a busy injector and mm. I'm sure a lot of people listening to us are people like that. So, how do, you, how do you do it? And maybe, you know, you introduced me to an app, Johnny, called Otter where you can yep. take, um, you know, you can use your phone to like verbally record notes and it will type them out for you. So, there's all these sort of speech recognition programs that help us become more efficient. But Jake, yeah, tell yeah. us what you think. Um, I've got to say I've never done the whole wait till the end of the day thing. That seems crazy not not just medical legally but i just i wouldn't want to do that i, I just want to get home after my day right so it becomes almost a crushing thing where you finish your day and then you've got to sit down and do a whole pile of notes it just doesn't seem practical um i can't even remember how many units i've done on you know patient one if i've seen 15 in a row so you've got to do it like you said temporarily is that a word temporarily temporaneously temporaneously um but yeah so so i think it it, it comes down to thinking about how you um, construct your consultation and also giving yourself enough time to have your consultation. So not to knock any particular clinics, but I know that there are some clinics where they're given 15 minutes per patient and it's just like, it's insane. You don't have 15 minutes to sort of get to know someone, let alone take photos, do the notes, do the treatment, give them aftercare yeah. and all the rest of it. So that, that just seems insane in itself. So give yourself more time, first of all, so you're not scrambling and then literally sit down with all your consent forms and all your forms and work out like a patient journey like what form do you need you know before they've even come to the clinic to fill out before what film do they form do they need to do you know in front of you what does your consent form look like and is it obviously you know um i guess legal and we'll come on to what does that mean later and then you know how are you going to do your notes so you're literally going to handwrite everything which i think it might be gold standard, but probably impossible. Or do you have a bit of a mixture, like Johnny said, where you've got a couple of checklists, so it reminds you to ask certain questions and you never forget them, but then a little paragraph underneath so you can sort of add and augment, you know, extra detail or bespoke things that you discussed if need to. I think that's how I do it. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, certainly doing it um, each time. And then also think about what system you're using. You know, certainly get away from paper, because you know it gets lost if you put it in your bag. There's a, a risk of on it. losing <laughs> it, and and patient sort of confidentiality being breached, and all of that. So have a system that is you know as compliant as can be. It's stored at the clinic as well as you know with the injector if possible, because it legally now it has to be at the clinic. I believe yep. that was a new change recently with the law. Um, and these notes need to be accessible by the clinic. You know, so if you're not there and a patient calls up and says whatever 
there needs to be a note there, not 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 somewhere else. Yeah. So you know, that's sort of some bullet points. But I, you know, I'm sure Jahan's got a lot more detail about that. I think you nailed it. Honestly, it's about the continuity of care. Let's say, for example, um, God forbid you walked out of the clinic and had a heart attack, and the patient came back with an adverse, you know, adverse event two hours later. Someone, someone needs to be able to check the notes and see what did you actually do, mm. yeah. right? Because um, that's a big deal. Yeah. You need to have aftercare in place. You need to have concern. It's, it's you're dealing with people. I mean, the, the, that's the bane of every professional services existence. You're gonna, unfortunately, you're gonna be worried about people forever. You, you, you can't just set and forget. You can't just go in, ha ha ha, and then leave. So it's really important to have those things in place that that show that you're a diligent and competent professional and that you're thinking about these things. Yeah. And um, even like setting expectations, you know, like situations where a patient says, I want 25 units and you say, well, to get the result that you're after, you're going to need 55 units. Mm. And the patient says, well, I don't want to spend that. Just give me this. And then lo and behold, two months rock around, the patient's um, product has worn off. They didn't get the <laughs> result that they wanted. And all of a sudden you're being accused of not delivering the right, the right result. Um, that is in line with their expectations. So even things like, you know, recommended this dose to patient. Patient was adamant they only wanted to spend this. Explain to patient that yeah. with this dose, you are not going to get the desired outcome. Like things like that, Johnny, I'm assuming important as well when you're having those sorts of issues around budget or when a person disagrees with your expert opinion, I guess you've either got the choice to treat Absolutely. or you, yeah. Oh my God, it's so important. It happens in my line of work. People come in, oh, how much am I going to get? And you go, okay, well, I can't advise you on that. But if we, let's assume this, this, and this, and you'll write down, told patient, we assume da, 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 all of my assumptions. Then the range is between da, 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 da. But you should, I mean, in my line of work, I can't predict what's going to happen. I can't imagine that in the aesthetic world it can. You would tell people that everyone responds. I mean, I, I would imagine it would be consistently the following. There are these really big risks that you take and everyone is different. I think I will get you this. I don't think this will happen and hopefully this is the outcome. That's all you can really do. Yeah. Um, but it's making people understand that you're not wizards. This isn't Harry Potter and you can wave a <laughs> wand and someone's, do you know what I mean? That, that, that yeah. there's a realistic range of outcomes yeah. that are possible given their, you know, given their biological makeup, given the, the state of technology and given what can be achieved. Yeah, I mean, it's a good thing. I'm just writing a talk for uh, talking about anti-wrinkle treatments and expectations and stuff. And like one simple tip that I've sort of decided that would be good for new injectors or any injector would be if you've got a new patient in front of you, you know, verbalize to them that on a, on a spectrum of how many people I see, your frown lines are, you know, with, with respect severe they're not moderate they're <laughs> not light you're an angry bitch and they're not absent <laughs> yeah. therefore that's going to guide my dose but also outcome you know you may not get that perfect smooth frown line immediately this is going to take time and so on and put that stuff in the notes have a tick box of absent mild moderate severe frown lines and tick severe yeah. so you've had that discussion and you've obviously verbalized that to the patient and that's guided your dose so stuff like that could be so simple just a couple of little tick boxes and whatever and then suddenly you've managed the expectation and if they say well actually i've only got 100 bucks i think that's the point the the point to pull out and say well i can't i can't you know i can't do it i'm not harry potter like you said yeah, yeah. It, it makes it more objective rather than you just saying no i'm not going to do it yeah 
I don't, I don't have like a magical elf that can just <laughs> grant you a wish. It, 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 it doesn't work like that. Now, Johnny, you and I have had lots of conversations um, over dinners and beers and you've always got an interesting story or an anecdote about something that's happened. And um, I know a lot of people will be listening, wondering, okay, well, tell us, give us an example. And you sort of alluded to a little bit in the, in the earlier part of the discussion, but can you take us on like a bit of a journey of maybe one of the most interesting or outrageous, crazy outcomes that have happened with a doctor or a nurse that you've represented? Just you know, like we're watching a movie. I'm going to get the popcorn out. I want to, I want to, I want all the, all well, the details. Well, first things first, this is not a true example, no. but it bears resemblance to a situation that took place. Um, so that's what you have to say. Lawyers yeah, speak there. Listen to what actually yeah, happened. Yeah, what they say, um, the, the names have been changed to protect the innocent or the guilty. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so I, um, I received the call. So in my line of work, almost all of it now is referral based and it will be a referral from someone in the community. And I got a call from a psychologist that I work with. Who's a wonderful human being who goes, Hey, um, Jahan, I'm, I'm really worried about this patient who's come in. She um, has had a terrible nose job. Her confidence is in the toilet. She feels horrific. Can, can you please meet with her? And I met with her. And in terms of just a good human being who had very reasonable expectations. So she's a, a, a 45-year-old mother of two, lovely woman, professional, who has gone to a doctor um, to get a uh, rhinoplasty surgery. That doctor is a doctor that has a history of over-promising and under-delivering. And it's no one in my family or immediate Think for anyone worried, um, <laughs> it's it's not it's it's no one like that. It's a it's a, it's a well known doctor from the eastern suburbs who has a history of this type of plastic thing. surgeon. Or what type of profession are we talking about? They are a plastic okay. surgeon. Oh, They're not an too much detail, hey? They're a plastic surgeon, <laughs> okay. and they and, and they have an ex. And, and what they tend to do is multiple operations at once across multiple domains, which is always very risky. Mm. So um, what I have found is, if you are, for example, a plastic a plastic surgeon who only works on the body your chances of having problems is much less than a plastic surgeon who works on the body and the face. Yeah. Or if your plastic surgeon just works on the face and doesn't touch the body, generally speaking, which, which makes sense. It's very hard to do two areas simultaneously. Um, so essentially attends upon this, um, attends upon this doctor. Doctor says, yeah, we can do everything all at once. Delivers a suboptimal outcome. The patient's nose does not look the way it should. Looks at it and says, I accept that this is a suboptimal outcome. I'm so sorry. I won't charge you my surgical fee again. You'll still have to pay hospital, et cetera, et cetera, but I will perform a second surgery. Performs a second surgery and it makes it even worse. Mm. And then he goes, no, no, I'll fix it in a third surgery. Now it's at this stage where alarm bells go in my client's head and she goes, that's not normal. I shouldn't be doing that. And she goes and starts speaking to people and realizes that it's not good. It's not a good situation. That's where she goes to and, and basically starts having a conversation with this doctor. And the doctor is incredibly arrogant. His correspondence is rude. It's just everything you don't want it to be. But basically he goes, well, um, you can have your money back for my fee and that's it. And that's it. I'm not going to deal with you. So it goes to this person who comes in and finds me and I meet with her and I, I, I believed her. I thought she was a very honest person. The cost of fixing it is so much more than the original surgery because we need to get things like rib grafts done. You need an expert in revision surgery. And that's when the odyssey sort of starts. And thankfully, it was such an egregious over-the-top outcome 
that we were able to get her a pretty good result, in my opinion. Um, even though the insurance company goes and gets a doctor, the doctor says, oh, it's, it's the patient's fault because they did ABC. Um, that sort of stuff happens. It happens in real life. And um, you, you, you have a kind of a duty as a, a person, you feel for this person because this person was told these things um, and the outcome was just not what they expected. And that case, I think, took 19 months to completion. Um, I don't think we filed in that particular case. And the settlement was settled on pretty pretty favorable terms for all parties, I think, including the, the, the physician. Um, it happens. It happens every single day. And I think the following would have avoided it from happening. One, the patient had, uh, the, the, the doctor had just been polite. And two, after the first surgery, he'd gone, I'm in out of my depth. Mm. I'm in out of my depth. Go see somebody else. Can I ask, how do you decide in that scenario? Obviously, you're looking for, um, I guess, compensation for the, the third surgery and all of the costs associated with that, plus maybe to cover the first and second operation. But is there like a way of you deciding how do you just compensate the situation? Like how do you decide on that the schedule value? of damages? Um, I could spend I could spend seven hours or eight hours explaining it, but fundamentally we break it down into various things like mm-hmm. economic damage, non-economic damage, future loss of income, loss of super, costs for medication, costs for treatment, and we break it down. Right, it's quite scientific. Right, as yeah. scientific as something like this can be. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a bit super is a pension for people wondering abroad. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and then you've got psychological damage and trauma and all that sort of stuff as well. So Absolutely. what's I mean, what sort of quantums of money are we talking about that this could a case would that settled for? I mean. I know you can't probably give exact numbers, but just roughly, what are we talking about? Six-ish figures. Right. Okay. So uh, We don't have aggravated damages here in Australia, and we don't have punitive damages, which means that the purpose of damages or payments is not to reward somebody or punish someone. It's to bring them back to the state they would have been were not were not for the negligence of this person. Right. Okay. Um, something that we didn't cover when we were talking about notes is photography. Mm. Um Obviously, you know, I think most injectors and, and doctors realize that that is part of the medical notes. It's, you know, it's a record of what happened on the day. But do you have um, sort of any extra advice about how that should be done sort of from, from a gold standard and, you know, things that can potentially go wrong with that? I think that um, I think that it's so important that if you're going to take photos, you take them with consistent lighting in the same spot. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god I, I mean i know it's insanity that i have to explain no we, we're laughing because we've said it so many times and yet every it, time it, i go on instagram people, i see people, it people, well, you know or or, uh, or the other thing is uh, telling people to adopt the same facial posture i mm. think for example with a lot of before and afters people deliberately go hey can you frown as much as you can and it just creates this incorrect analysis it's it's that, that photo should never be used for anything other than yourself. Yes. You, there's a whole something to be said about promotional material, completely separate conversation to be had with a completely separate type of lawyer. But these are your notes. And what you really want is, I took the photo at 10. I explained all of these things. At 11, there was nothing wrong. Mm. You know, when they came in for the follow-up, nothing was wrong. That's, I mean, a picture's worth a thousand words. It, it really is. But you want to make sure you keep it consistent. You want to make sure you keep it private. You don't want it somewhere where it can be accessed and, yeah. and all sorts of issues can happen. Um, and, and, and access in the broader sense, sure, hackers from overseas, but also like busybody staff members, that's a real risk to, to, to certain clinics where they have um, people who, you know, oh, oh, you treat this celebrity client. I'm going to access that. I mean, that's a, that's a huge privacy risk where you could potentially find yourself in deep water. Yeah. Stop taking photos on your phone. Yeah. Um, I, I see it all I the time. I don't even yeah. understand how that's still a thing. 
buy an iPad, 400 bucks, take the photo on the iPad, upload it to a secure cloud server where it cannot be touched in any way, shape or form that doesn't have access to the general public. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, if you're an artist, which I would consider what you do, Jake, and the people that work in your profession are artists, would you take a photo of your art piece with an iPad? Or would you get a proper photo with proper lighting presented in the in the most, you know, the most realistic and positive way that you can without being disingenuous? Yeah. Why would you take I'm not saying your iPad suggestion was bad, John. What I'm saying is that this is your work. This is how you build your reputation. This is how you prove that you've done a good job. Why would you use a suboptimal camera and why would you put yourself at a risk where that thing can go missing? You might leave it in a cab on Saturday night after you've had a few too many drinks. Things still get stolen. Yeah, things still go missing, and that's a medical record. Yeah, and and the other aspect, I guess, to dovetail with coming onto consent and stuff is consent of use of those photos. Something that I guess can easily happen, although it shouldn't, is like you say, you take a photo and you go, "Wow, that's an awesome result." I'm going to use it on my Instagram. <laughs> um, what, what you know? What's your sort of best practice for use of photos and consent and and those issues? I'm not across it well enough to have a, an educated opinion. I think that the era of um, we've seen it go wrong. Um, that's and that's all I'll say. We've seen when people take it too far. From time to time, with proper consent of a dignified photograph, I have no issue with that. But some of the stuff that I've been seeing, which is just shy of salacious, which I mean, it drives clicks. Um, is probably a poor form for a clinical person to do, yeah. if I can say it that way. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think I know what you're getting at with some of the plastic surgeons. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's some of it's ba- basically like, honestly, some of it, um, sure, they consented to being used that way, but like people can withdraw their consent and change their mind. But once it's out there, it's out there. Yeah, correct. And um, I- I'm surprised there's not more complaints made about it, to be perfectly honest. Mm. I mean, from my perspective, just really simple, if there's any injectors sort of wondering, when I'm consenting for actually the treatment, there's a section for photography and it's broken down into, can I not use it for anything? Tick the box, fine. Then we're very clear what we can do with it. Or can I educate doctors and nurses in a teaching capacity in a room? So it's, you know, it's not in public, it's just with doctors and nurses. Or can I use it on social media? Or, you know, or or whatever variation you want, so it's clear. Yeah. So I think it's pretty explicit from the start. So because yeah, a lot of patients, and and to be honest, they come to me worried with an assumption that I'm just going to do it without asking them. So we have a very clear conversation of, yeah. well, no, it's your choice. I'm not just going to. I think that's good because you're clearing up the ambiguity. You're actually putting a tick for each option. So there's none of this. Well, I didn't know you weren't going to use it for this. I think that's I think that's great. Yeah, it's really good advice. Um, I wanted to ask you about consent forms, Jahan, and clinics use consent forms for all the procedures that they do. Something happens that's outlined in that consent, people have signed, they've understood. So what level of protection are you actually getting from a consent form if people have undertaken um, a procedure, they've read, they've understood the risks and something's gone wrong because shit happens, right? That's life. Sometimes you do all the right things and just it's a numbers game. Sometimes things go wrong. So what level of protection do you get from a consent form? How can you strengthen it? And then can you maybe explain, even despite having a consent form, how you can still come undone? So if a consent form is properly explained and it is gone through step-by-step step with someone and there's there's a positive understanding, you get substantial protection. No, you don't, consent forms are critical. They're really important things that every, every clinician should have. Um, 
but they're not bulletproof magic wands that prevent litigation. And it's important that the principle of informed consent is not forgotten in the consent form. Case in point, they, a patient goes to a clinician, gets a suboptimal outcome in relation to some um, fillers and also some botulinum toxin A that's used in their face. Doctor says you sign consent form. Sorry, sucks to be you. Patient does not speak English. <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, that's- Patient does not speak English. Patient cannot read consent form. Patient, yes, yes, inject, inject. How can you say that you have informed consent? In what universe is putting a piece of paper in front of someone who doesn't know what's going on, making all of the clinical choices for them, and then turning around and saying they had informed consent, they understood? This is a, you know, a person of advanced age who doesn't speak the language. So, you, I mean, people, everyone becomes so obsessed that it's, it's like a will. Even the best crafted will is open to challenge. However, having a will reduces the likelihood of that challenge. I guess that was probably an extreme example. It would be seem pretty obvious that if someone speaks only Chinese, they're not going to be able to speak uh, read an English form. But we, I, you know, I've certainly been in the position, I'm sure you've had experiences yeah. where the patients go, oh, yeah, 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 sign at the bottom. And you go, well, hold on, d- did you read it? Because, you know, again, what I try to do is I'll give them an opportunity to read it and then I'll verbalize the main paragraphs with them before they sign it. So there's kind of a, you know, a, a two-way process, I guess. But again, how do you actually, you know, it's one thing for me to say, blah, 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 there's a risk of blocking blood vessels. We call that an occlusion and then a really bad one and you can go blind. And the patient goes, oh yeah, that's fine. They don't really understand the consequences. I, you know, I don't believe. You could, yeah. How, how, what is informed consent? Because, you know, what we're supposed to sort of do as doctors is make sure they can retain, understand, weigh up the pros and cons and the alternatives. So y- you can do that, but how do you know that someone really understands that? They explain it back to you in their own words and you take it to be a sufficient standard. Now, that's not a that's not a legal test, but that makes sense to me. So if you go to them, hey, there's this thing called an occlusion and you go blind, you know, what does that mean to you? Oh, it means that sometimes people go blind when they do this. Okay. Yeah, cool. That's, I mean, they're never going to have the same vocabulary and the same expertise, but that's, that's something. Yeah. yeah. What about the concept of using sort of um, a video component where you've got a standard consult, which will go through all of the um, complications, expectations, side effects, and so on, um, and having someone sign something to say, yes, I read and understood that video. And then at least you've got something that you can present to the court or someone like you and say, look, Jahan, um, I know your, your client is telling you, A, this is the video that I showed every client. Here's the form where they've signed to say they understood the video and you've got some consistency. And I, I guess obviously, Jake, you know, talking about having an area to put bespoke details for the particular patient circumstances, but would that potentially be a strategy that could avoid some of the ambiguity? I think anything you can do to inform the patient of what's going to happen is a good move. But once again, it doesn't really, um, it, the, 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 the reason that they've come to you and you're performing a clinical, and the reason you have indemnity insurance is that it's not about the knowledge you have. It's about applying the knowledge to that specific person, right? Yeah. So for example, if it's a video about that's pretty hyper-focused to them, I think it would have more weight than then. This is the general world of Botox. Because what, 
it's like it's like Jake said, you go, okay, well, look, I've seen thousands of patients and on a spectrum, you are severe or you are moderate. Um, that's really helpful because what you've done is you've contextualized the knowledge to them. And that's what the secret is. That's how you get out of trouble. Yeah. I guess going back to David's example of using a video as well, yeah. I, I've thought about that. But at the end of the day, it goes back to, I guess, what Jahan said of that that doesn't prove that the patient understood and retained and, and could weigh it up. It just It's just another form, if you like. Mm. That It's just like a tick box, isn't it? Yeah. So I don't know, but I think it's a, it might be a better way of explaining those concepts and, and then sort of having that verbal chat yeah, as well. But I, I just never know how you prove it. Like It's fine for me to say we had this oh. long discussion about blindness, occlusions, et cetera. We were all very clear that we knew what we were doing and I've got this signature and blah, blah, blah. But when it comes to court, well, yeah. you know, the patient could say, well, he lied. He, he didn't do that. And, and yeah, that's not my signature. That's, that's absolutely possible. But I'll tell you what would help you if the notes were uploaded at 10.31 after the procedure was finished at 10.25, if the notes were contemporaneous and completed to a high standard, if after the thing you had made, a, if they called you, you got back to them quickly, mm. all of those things go to showing the situation. Of course, they can say that you lied, of course. Yeah. And then the, the, the court's going to weigh up the, you know, the, the different things and it's going to make a determination. But if you've, if you've uploaded your notes quickly and you've done a good job and the notes are pretty comprehensive and it's a 31-year-old female patient and it, t- it is a 31-year-old female patient, that's really helpful. Yeah. That's really, really helpful from a, uh, from a you perspective and your insurance perspective in seeing that you weren't reckless. If you uploaded the notes five days later or God help you, if you've only uploaded the notes after a complaint's been made, yeah. which has happened, then you're going to have more issues. Yeah. One thing that we were discussing last night, John, when we were sort of talking about our discussion today was what can happen to practitioners when they start putting things up on social media that could be used as a character assassination or to call into question their competency at the time. You gave an example of a practitioner that had been out at a club or partying uh, over the weekend, turned up on Monday, first patient got a bad outcome, you know, someone like you is trawling through someone's social media going, aha, they were out. 100%. They were out on the weekend. Maybe they took something. Maybe they had a big night. Maybe they were hungover. Could that be a factor? So maybe you just want to talk to the importance of how you conduct yourself um, in those ways that would not, well, I guess would protect you from having your personal life used as a weapon um, against you and your professional career as a practitioner. So I'm I'm 35, um, and I I'm not I'm, I I do I know how to use social media a bit, but I'm not very good at it. But I've got 19 year old, 20 year old paralegals who can find things out. Like they'll know what I had for breakfast November <laughs> 2nd, 2020, where I was, who I was with, and it forms part of the evidentiary pool. You're entitled to rely upon it. So if somebody, for example is saying, oh, we had a long consultation and, you know, there was all of this stuff and I discussed this and that. Well, let's look at some simple things. If they've got a 15-minute time slot and that's it, and we know for a fact they saw a patient before and after, we could probably tell that they didn't spend as long as they should have covering off all of these things. Um, If there's video footage of them being like, can't wait to get lit tonight and 3 a.m. there's a video of them (laughs) drinking champagne. I mean, it, 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 it belies the truly absurd but it happens. And when you see something like that and you bring it to the attention of their insurer, well, 
you've strengthened your case substantially. So I think it's really important to have, um, you know, on your social media, be very, very careful about what you post. Certainly be very careful about how and when it will be taken. Assume that somebody will read about it or do something. But most importantly, don't operate impaired. People will hate you and be really annoyed at you if you cancel your appointment, but they will get over it. What they won't get over is an occlusion that leads them blind. Or what they won't get over is um, a, a, a necrotic nose that may have to become a skin flap because of a surgery because you were impaired in some way or shape or form. I mean, it, it, it goes beyond that. You're a human being and human beings make mistakes, but you should never in any way, shape or form be doing your job impaired, particularly when your job affects the health of someone, both their physical, their mental, et cetera. Yeah, I I certainly won't give away any details, but I've had to say to someone, I think they turned up for training. It wasn't sort of with a patient and I could just smell alcohol. <laughs> I just knew that they'd been out or, or whatever. And I said, this is just not on. Yeah. Like you wouldn't do this in clinics. So what are we doing? And and I hope that person learned from it, but uh, I guess it's not uncommon. It's not intentional, but come on, you know, I, I wouldn't go into theater stinking of booze. So yeah. why would you put a needle to someone's face with risk of blindness? It's the same thing, isn't it? I've terminated someone because they, they, they turned up to a matter with, with, with alcohol. They had been drinking. They said, I'm not impaired. I just had one at lunch. I've terminated someone. You're dealing with someone's life. It's not a game. It's not, yeah. it's, it's, it's not up for debate. Um, even if there's a chance that it's going to impair what you do. I mean, I don't know if we need to go as far as pilots who are not allowed to have anything 12 hours before. Okay. Maybe that's a bit extreme, but I think I prefer that. I prefer to have a pilot. I prefer to sit on a plane knowing that the pilots had nothing 12 hours before, has had to eat food, has had to get sleep. Than I am with the alternative, which is, oh, you know, let the pilot have some fun. I, I prefer them. I prefer them not to have that fun. Thanks. Yeah, fair enough. Hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, I think we can learn a lot from the airline industry, and they've learned from their own mistakes. But we, we in medicine, I, I mean, I know in France, uh, I think it's still the case that at lunchtime doctors still can have a glass of wine with their. It's called lunch. a long lunch. It goes for two hours. It's crazy. They have red wine. And if a procedure needs to be uh, delayed, so be it. It's insane. <laughs> yeah. It's so. insane. I, 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 because I, I, I have friends, friends who work in France, and we, we talk about things, and just they, they think I'm crazy that I think that like you, you know, a surgeon shouldn't have red wine for performing, you know, a whipple, yeah, or you know, something complicated, and they're just like, no, 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 it's fine. It's, yeah, it's not fine. Yeah, unbelievable. So. In terms of what you're looking for, in terms of uh, an opportunity to, to to potentially start litigation, so we we covered notes, we covered communication, we covered the actual outcome itself. Is there other things that we should be aware of, or you could sort of recommend to our listeners to take into consideration, or social media too? But what else? What else is out there? Well, a believable and likable plaintiff, somebody who comes to me and I believe them, somebody who seems genuine. Um, that's a big one. Um, I'm looking for consequences that. While not catastrophic, I mean, obviously, I'll represent anyone with catastrophic consequences, but um, I'm looking for more than trivial, you know, um, I'm looking for more than a trivial consequence. And so are most lawyers because it's such a complicated area. So, you know, some light bruising, we're not generally going to come after you too hard. <laughs> you know, uh, some lawyers will who have nothing else to do, but, but generally speaking, we'll leave it. So we're also looking for patterns of behavior. 
you, you may not know it, but we keep a book of all of the top, the doctors that we know bungle things because there's a few barristers who specialize in personal injury. There's a few of, of, of people like myself who, who are in this space. And we kind of know if you're in that, if you're in that group. So we kind of keep our ears to the ground. And if, you know, you, 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 if you come to me and you say, oh, I went to Dr. Such and Such and I've, I've heard about you having this consequence before, that's, that's usually something that suggests to me it's worth pursuing. That sounds absolutely terrifying. You've got a book of it's got a black You're not book. on that book, Jay. You're fine. <laughs> not yet. I've actually got a question uh, which I think would certainly um, affect nurses in Australia. I don't know if this applies to other countries because some countries nurses can't inject. But here in Australia, registered nurses can, can work uh, supervised by a doctor usually remotely, but I guess the gold standard would be on site. And let's just take a simple scenario, injections done, and you know, there's a vascular occlusion. Whose responsibility is that legally? It's a great question. I'm waiting for that to happen. Thankfully, I haven't seen a case where it's happened. It must have happened. I know happened. exactly what you're saying. It must have happened. I know exactly happened. what you're saying. I mean, it, I mean, here's my interpretation, but you, you know, you're, the, you're the expert. If it was something like a consent and a medical history issue that wasn't picked up by the doctor who's doing the FaceTime or in-person consultation, you would assume that that's going to fall on the doctor. Whereas if it's a technical issue, you know, uh, you know, the patient was fine, consent done, all of that, uh, ster- everything was sterile, etc. But just a technicality of the injector, my interpretation would be that the nurse is going to be responsible. But you tell me. I can't tell you because it would depend on the case itself. But what I would tell you is that we would probably spend 200 hours looking at that two-minute window mm. where what happened that day and figuring out who was responsible. And I imagine we would blame both. And then the nurse would blame the doctor and the doctor would blame the nurse because you can have joint liability. Yeah. And from my perspective, I would be trying to prove both of them were responsible. Like, like that, that, because then I get two lots of insurances. I was going to say, I mean, I don't know how to say this nicely. You're just spreading the the fishing net to to cover all bases. Well, it could be one or it could be both. So why would I not engage both and let them prove that it wasn't their fault? Yeah, they'll right. turn on each other. Well, <laughs> and I guess my other question extending from that is, what do you say to doctors who are volunteering to be on teams of prescribing services, potentially you know, offering support for nurses nowhere near them geographically. Be careful with the nurses and the clinics you team up with. In certain clinics that do things to a very high standard, I imagine it's a it's a sensible and reasonable revenue source. For certain clinics which do things in a dodgy, haphazard way, I imagine it would be the doom of you. Yeah, right. The doom of you. That sounds, again, <laughs> terrifying. I, 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 I can tell you right now, because I, I know the service you're talking about, I know that some people pay a little bit and some people pay a lot. I can tell you that there I've I've I'm I think it's an inevitability that the situation you've described will happen and it will happen soon now that the volumes have opened up. That service that you're describing has allowed a real renaissance of allowing talented, competent cosmetic injectable nurses to run businesses, which is fantastic. Because some of them honestly will do a better job than a doctor. Truly, they do so much of it. They're so good at it and they know what they're doing and they really care. 
But on the flip side of it, there are ones that should have nothing to do with this industry. They're butchers and they're inept. They and they they really should not be using services like that. And if a doctor doesn't properly vet the people that they're on, they're going to be in deep trouble because they will make a mistake. It's 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 not an if, it's a when. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I'm actually not singling out any particular service because there's numerous ones. Yeah. And it's just the way nurses can and do inject in Australia. So it's a big country and, and there are hundreds of clinics. So you're just not going to have doctors sitting in that clinic eyeballing every person face to face. That's not, that's not the reality. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not pointing out one service, but just as a generality. Yeah, there's a few of them. I didn't know there was multiple. I only know one, but yeah. it's, I think it's an, it's not an, if it's a when, I mm-hmm. think that will absolutely happen. Yeah, it's Particularly like some of them, like I've seen cases which are like super irresponsible. Like it's like 8 PM or something. And on a Friday night, the doctor's out, you know, the, the doctor's not even in the same state. Yes. That, uh, a bit worrying. You know, they're out at the they're out like at a at a pub and they're like, What? What? Oh, have you ever had Botox before? Great, yeah, <laughs> you're fine. It, it's bad. Like that's really concerning. Yeah. Yeah. I mean the other way around and, and, and again I'm not knocking anyone is that you know you have a nurse contacting a plastic surgeon who's knee deep in blood and guts and you've got a, a scrub nurse holding a phone up saying oh hey doc nurse Sally's calling you for a script and it, it's just as ridiculous in another scenario and that happens a lot yeah yeah. so it's you know I, I just yeah do it properly I think, think there's uh, more ground to be covered and improvements to be made in this in this process it's inevitable I think um, one of the things we've only got a few more questions uh, Johan I know you're busy you've got uh, people to save and uh, people to sue um, so, um, one of the things you mentioned last night was ambulance chases now we're talking about um, well maybe let's define what that is my understanding is it probably no win no fee type law firms, um, you know, like your Slater and Gordons and all those sorts of things. Um, what does that mean um, in terms of you as a practitioner or you as the patient? Um, is there anything nuanced about that that the listeners should know about? Sure. Uh, look, I, I was a proud ambulance chaser for the first few years of my profession, and it does mean no win, no fee. It's the analogy that there's an accident and, and you know, the lawyer is running with their briefcase throwing business cards by the handful, <laughs> yeah. hopefully hoping something happens. Um there are certain firms that specialize in it's a numbers game. They'll do so many with the hope of winning just a key few because the, the the margins are there in personal injury. And if you can afford to carry the files because they're so expensive from start to finish, you can, you can make a really good living. There's nothing fundamentally wrong with that business model. That being said, certain firms do have very poor client interaction because they're not playing. They don't care if it's one. They're about the volume. So that's what I guess an ambulance chaser is. It's this idea of um, it's this idea of numerous um, uh, numerous lawyers who specialize in just dealing with the the bad stuff of life. The 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 thing to be careful and cognizant of: you don't want a lawyer who's desperate for your case. All right. Sometimes it happens. Maybe twice in my career, a case has walked in, and I've just thought this is a case where I can absolutely help someone, and I'm probably going to make a small fortune. That does happen, but it's few and far between. Generally speaking, and sometimes it's like this person has no choice. Like we need to go to court for this person. There's no alternative. Generally speaking, though, you want a lawyer who tells you the following information. Court is stressful. A case is actually a burden. I will be with you the whole step along the way. And I I, I can't guarantee you anything. That's what you want to tell them. And if the lawyer doesn't cover that off and tells you it's a definitely you've won, there's no risk to you, everything's going to be fine, be very skeptical. 
We'll end on a listener question. We've got a question from Jacinta King, who's a yeah. good friend of ours. She's been on the podcast before. She's up in the Sunshine Coast. She's the president of the... CNA. Yeah, the Cosmetic Nurses Association. Yeah, yep. I thought this was a great question, actually. So I guess for the context of both you, Jahan, and listeners um, not in Australia, injectors all around the world suffer with a lack of regulatory processes, I guess. We don't have a formal qualification, and I think that's the same for most countries, apart from maybe Holland, and we've discussed that in a podcast before. But what would legal counsel want as proof of training or competency or working with within your own scope of practice in the event of being sued? Because I don't think you, you can. Yeah. So you want to you want to basic that's a fan. Jacinta's brilliant. That's a great question. What I would want to see is the following: that they have had some sort of. I, I would look at things in a general term. So, for example, how long have they been a nurse? That's one. Two, have they had extra special training in this particular area? For example, have they done advanced courses with the relevant providers? Ibsen. Um, have they done it with Allegan? Um, how many cases have they seen of this particular nature? And. All of that is building, I guess, a quasi-contextual web. Similarly, it allows me to, I guess, you know, if this is the first time a person's ever done, you know, a injectable, that's a real issue. That's a really, really big issue for them. If it's the 10,000th time and they just got a bad adverse outcome, it's quite different. Mm. So what we would look at, I guess, from a practical perspective, what they actually do and how they actually did it. It's less about the qualification. I mean, think it, keep in mind, like, how useless are you when you've got your driving's license for the first time? You're technically allowed to drive, but you don't know what you're doing. It's the same sort of thing. It's what expertise did you bring to bear on the situation? Yeah, right. fair enough. Yeah, so uh, keep good notes, take lots of photos, and, and and make sure the patient and you know what you're going to do with them and where you're going to store them. Yep. Communicate properly. Yep. Um, don't be a dick. <laughs> Yeah, and re and reply in DMs and and sort of be flippant with people. And no kisses and no, hey babe, you're going to look amazing. Don't call people babe. And don't go out drinking the night before you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if anything I'm saying is controversial and shocking, then really rethink whether you should be in this industry. You know, because none of this stuff should surprise you. But it's communication. It's having polite, firm, important communication and conveying to people that this is a medical procedure. It is not a massage. It is not a haircut. It's not you know, It's not a manicure or pedicure. It is a medical procedure involving a scheduled drug that I have had to go and study. And it's an expertise that could have a catastrophic impact on your life, but hopefully will improve your life dramatically. That's what they basically need to know. Fantastic. fantastic. Thank you, Jahan. Appreciate you taking the time and sharing your words of wisdom. Thank you very much. We'll put all your details at the bottom of the podcast. If people want to get in touch, I'm sure we're going to have people asking questions and wanting to get in contact with you. So we'll put that all in the description. We'll also put a link to your uh, infamous slash famous slash very entertaining <laughs> uh, TikTok page for people that want to just go and learn random things about the law. Well, I wonder if we could do something a little bit extra. Maybe we could collect some post-podcast questions uh, through yeah. our what new WhatsApp I'll upload them. Absolutely. And then you can do a TikTok to answer them. Excellent. Absolutely. And and just so your listeners know, we do we do actually represent people before they get into trouble too. So we can advise you on your consent forms. We can go through your pre-practice procedure. We can help you triage those situations. Um, it's, you know, it, it's foolhardy to only seek advice once things have gone wrong. There's With a little bit of tweaking, you can prevent it all from happening. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jahan. Really nice thank to meet so you. Much, thank you so much, Doc. It was so nice to meet you, Jake. It was great to see you, David. Thank you, buddy. For our latest news, upcoming guests, and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. 
Using the link in our Instagram profile, you can easily email us, text us, apply to be a guest on the show, follow our personal accounts on Instagram, and even show your love and support us on Patreon. 